Uh, last week in the Gospel of Matthew, as we uh, looked at the temptation of Christ, we kind of took it as an overview, and we kind of basically drew out three points of Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and I kind of want to revisit that portion of the text this morning. But before we dig into that, just to let you know, um, we've been talking about some small groups and, and starting some uh, groups at, at different times and things like that, and, and um, basically we're going to be sharing with you more information um, as we put those together and, and uh, kind of come together as the body of Christ. We really believe that as a church, um, ministry uh, happens not just within these four walls. That it's not just about coming on Sunday and showing up and filling your spot and smiling and saying everything's fine and then going home and, and uh, you know, to the, the, the home that everybody goes home to where things are not perfect. Um, we really believe that as a church, uh, we want to uh, allow the body to get together at various times, um, wh- whenever those times are convenient for those, those people. And we're going to do that as uh, we uh, promote these small groups in the near future. But uh, just be praying about that. One thing we'd want you to pray about is what is a good night uh, or day, I guess for that matter, um, a good time for you to meet with uh, other folks in our body in a small group. And by small group, we mean 10, 12 people. Um, And uh, we really believe that Scripture uh, teaches this. In the book of Acts, it says they went from house to house. They just didn't come out once a week. And uh, there's a lot of ministry and a lot of fellowship that can go on in a small group as you get to know one another and uh, just minister to one another. And that's uh, what the the church is supposed to be all about. It's not just supposed to be about coming on Sunday and and doing the church thing and then uh, uh, leaving and never seeing anybody else until the the next Sunday. Uh, That's not really not fellowship. Um, That's just showing up for church. And that's good. We're glad you do that. Don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, we want it to kind of push you a little bit further and uh, in your maturity in Christ and fellowshipping with one another. So be praying in the coming weeks, what would be a good time for you to meet with other folks? Because we're going to kind of be offering uh, some different groups that we'll be meeting. And, and we just want you to be praying for us as we set that up and then also uh, just what would be a convenient time for that. Um, as we look at our text uh, this morning, uh, last week we looked at how uh, we can overcome temptation. We looked at how Jesus Christ was faced with temptation. And we looked at three things, basically, just in review in case you weren't here last week. Um, three things that we looked at. First of all, we looked at we need to expect temptation. It's not something that just, you know, uh, that we don't have to expect. We have to expect it. Um, And we have to understand that even good people are tempted. It's not just bad people who are tempted. As a matter of fact, last week we looked in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Matthew, and it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. The Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness to be what? To be tempted, it says, by the devil. And that's an interesting thing when you stop and you think about that. No sooner had Jesus experienced his first great testimony of his ministry, he was baptized by the, uh, uh, the, John the Baptist, and after being anointed by the Holy Spirit, and after hearing the Father's voice and a dove you know, descending on him like the Holy Spirit, and the Father's voice come out and say, hey, I'm, I'm well pleased with you, my son, all of a sudden the Spirit comes along and leads him out into the wilderness, and he doesn't eat or drink for 40 days and 40 nights. Doesn't sound like the kind of ministry kickoff party that I'd like to have. Jesus was now basically into his full divine mission. Up to this point, nothing mattered in his life. We don't have anything, hardly anything recorded about Jesus' younger life. There's a couple things here and there. He went to the temple and he taught and he got lost from his parents and things like that. But no details. And I think the reason God left the details out is because they're not important. What's important is what starts right now. From this point on in the gospel, this is what really, really matters in the ministry and life of Christ. It's never before God was fully satisfied and Jesus was fully satisfied in what God had laid out before him. And he is waiting for 30 years, almost in obscurity, and now... He's on the front lines of ministry. And it says that the devil tried to discourage him, tried to turn him away from God's will for his life. 
And it's interesting when you stop and you think about it, that here's Jesus being led by the Spirit. And that was one of the first things we looked at, is that we need to expect temptation. If you're not expecting temptation, then it's going to hit you. And it's going to hit you hard. We need to expect it, because it's going to happen to every one of us. Also, we have to understand temptation. We have to understand how, how Satan works. And we looked at that last week. And then the third thing we looked at is how we have to attack temptation. We have to have some form of arsenal ready when that temptation comes. If you go to the front lines in Iraq as a Marine or as an Army person, and you're out there on the front lines and you have no bullets, you're, you're in a heap of trouble. <laughs> That's not the kind of soldier that you'd want to send into battle. You want to send the soldier that has all the equipment, that has all the, the bullets ready to go. When the enemy attacks, he can fire back. We need to attack temptation. We need to understand it. And we also need to expect it. It's going to happen. But here in our text, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning just because a lot of times we forget that there is such a thing as the devil. <laughs> you know, and he's not the little, you know, red-suited man with the pitchfork and the horns that we see at, at uh, Halloween time. That's not who he is. It's one of... Satan's most common scriptural names, the devil. And I think we want to take a little bit of time here this morning before we even get into this to really understand our enemy and identify who he is. There's a lot of different names given to the devil. Just turn over to John, the Gospel of John. I think I listed him there in your, in your Bible so you can turn ahead. John chapter 12. We're not going to look all these up for time's matter. You can look them up on your own. But John chapter 12, it says in verse 30 and 31, it says, Jesus answered and said, This voice did not come because of me, but for, you, but, uh, for your sake. And then in verse 31 it says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Who's the ruler of this world? The devil. All right. Another name for the devil, the ruler of the world. That, that word devil means accuser or deceiver. That's why he's not a, a red-suited individual with a pitchfork and horns running around with a tail. That would be kind of obvious, wouldn't it? If the devil was sitting here this morning, we'd have, that's the devil. Stay away from that person. Everybody move over here. You know, um, That would be obvious. Satan doesn't work that way because part of his nature is he's a deceiver. He's a deceiver. And it says that he's the ruler of this world, what we see around us. That's why I just kind of crack up when, when people are into the social gospel. And what I mean by that is we need to change society. We need to make everything better so that when one day, then Jesus will come back and we make everything good enough. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches things are going to get worse. They're going to get worse and worse and worse. It's funny. You know, when elections roll around, everybody starts talking about political things and, oh, I hope this person... What if this person got elected? doesn't matter. God's sovereign. God puts people in authority, the Word of God says. It doesn't matter what your political affiliation is. You could think that the worst person in your mind to get elected the next term for the president or for the senator or for the congress, whatever it might be. But you know what? God puts those people in office. We forget that sometimes. And it's not going to get better, beloved. It's going to get worse. Because Satan is not going to give up. He's deceived. And he's a deceiver. He's a slanderer. And we need to remember that. He's the ruler down here. God has, in His sovereignty, let Him have His way down here. That's why when you look at things and you watch things on TV and you listen to things on the radio, you know, it's very easy to get very uptight about the world's situation. You know what? I go to bed at night knowing, you know what? God's got everything under control. There's not one thing that happens that God, that catches God by surprise. Not one thing. And for whatever reason, he's allowed Satan, ultimately it's for his glory, for God's glory, to be the ruler of this world. Ephesians 2.2 2 says that he's the prince of the power of the air. 
See, a lot of people think that Satan can be multiple places at one time. He's like God. He's omnipresent. He's not. He's not. That's why when I hear somebody, you know, talk about, oh, you know, it's like Satan came and visit them. I'm thinking, whoa, you know, you must be a pretty dynamic person for Satan to personally come and visit you. Because he can only be one place at one time. But it says that he's the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he's the God of this world. He's the God of this world. That's why 1 John says, you know, love not the world, nor the things in the world. Don't, don't go there, because you're loving the wrong God if that's, if that's what you're loving. Your priorities are all messed up if you love this world. Satan has you right where he wants you. But the Bible says set affections on what? On things above. The Bible also calls Satan in Revelation 12.9 the serpent of old and the deceiver of the whole world. See, that's why as a believer I can have compassion on people who have not come to Christ yet and who are living a sinful lifestyle and, and rather than building up a, a, a big armament and saying, oh, stay away from them, they may corrupt me. No, the goal is to reach them with the gospel. Why? Because they're deceived. Just like you and I have been deceived. And it only was when Christ took the scales off our eyes and we could see for the first time the glory of God and, and have our sin shown to us in a very real way and to realize that, you know what? We're sinners before a holy God. We have to, something has to be done with this. You can't pay for your own sin. That's what Satan would want you to think. That somehow by coming to church or by giving money or helping poor people or you're paying for your sin. You're not paying for your sin. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. And even if you were to die for yourself, it still wouldn't be good enough because you're not a perfect sacrifice. God's Word says that God demands a perfect sacrifice. And there's only one person that ever lived and died and and can be sacrificed, was sacrificed in a perfect way, and that was Jesus Christ. But Satan would have you not to believe that, because Satan is a deceiver. He wants you to believe you can live your life your own way, you can do things your own way, you can just be a good person. I mean, what is a good person? You know, I mean, stop and think about it. You know, the person next to you may be, be better than you, but what is our comparison? Who are we comparing ourselves to? Well, ultimately, we should be comparing ourselves to a holy God. And are we perfect? Are we holy? No way. We all sin. Every one of us. Probably in a myriad of ways every day. And when you stop and you hear that and you think that, well, then why should I compare myself to Joe across the street? Because Joe across the street has parties and I don't, so I think I'm better than him. Who cares? That's not the, that's not the measuring stick. God's not going to meet you one day at the gates of heaven and say, Oh, you know, you weren't as bad as Joe, Steve. You know, you didn't have parties, so come on in. <laughs> All that other stuff you did, don't worry about it. I'll just forget about it. No, it doesn't work that way. God is a just God. Sin has to be paid for. It has to be atoned for. And God did that through Jesus Christ. But Satan wants you, because he's the deceiver, he wants you to, he's the God of this world, he wants you to think that somehow you, you, can, you can do your own salvation, your own way. The Bible also calls him the Abadner, Apollyon, which means which in Revelation 9:11, and that means destroyer. Satan is a destroyer. I mean, he doesn't come out and say, "Hey, you know, I want to destroy your life." He doesn't say that. He comes out and he says, "Hey, you know, I'm going to make you feel good. I'm going to allow you to experience things that, boy, just rock your world. It'll be great. It'll be fun." But ultimately, he's a destroyer. That's what the Bible says. He's not out there thinking, how can I make your life better? <laughs> That's just not who Satan is. He wants to destroy your life. He wants you to, your life to be dishonoring to God. And also, as we see here in our text in Matthew 4, Satan is also called a tempter. He's called the tempter. And the reason I, I share those thoughts with you is because 
A lot of people today, including some professing Christians, you notice I say professing Christians, they don't believe in a personal devil. They don't believe it. They think it's some kind of fairy tale that somebody made up. But here in our text, in the Bible, in Matthew 4, we see where Satan had never made himself more personally manifest than he did to Jesus in the wilderness. Incredible account. And the Lord's own account shows unmistakably that, G, that Satan, our opponent, is a very personal being. John MacArthur in his, his commentary on Matthew reads this quote, and he says this, Satan was so real even to Martin Luther that it is reported that on one occasion Luther threw his inkwell at his adversary. <laughs> It was so real. He, he, he threw an object at it. And I don't want you to go out of here this morning thinking that Satan's just some fairy tale or I don't have to be worried about this or I don't have to be worried about that. If you're in Christ, you don't have to be worried about Satan. That's true. But if you don't have Christ in your heart, if you haven't trusted Him, you don't have a hope. You don't have a prayer. Satan was cast out of heaven, Lucifer, by the Lord, the Bible tells us. And because of that, because he was trying to take over, he, his pride was just welled up inside him. He said, hey, I'm going to be like God. I'm going to take over this whole deal. And the Bible tells us that the Lord basically threw him out of heaven. And it really ticked him off. <laughs> it did. And I think Satan's fury has, ever since that point in time, been on turned up to full notch. And he wants to work against God and he wants to work against anything that God stands for. And you know what? He wants to work against you if you're a Christian here today. Remember, at Jesus' incarnation, the wrath of, of Satan was especially focused with such intensity as we looked at when Christ was born. Tried to prevent it. Did everything he had. He tried to have Herod kill the babies and everything. It looked like it was over. And God came through and delivered the Son of God. And Joseph and Mary. See, you have to understand that the devil's... He's only got one strategy. He's only got one plan. He's only got one purpose. And that's basically to frustrate the plan of God and to usurp the place of God. He wants to be God. And to do that, he's going to mess up God's plan however he can. Therefore, he will continually attack Christ, and he'll continually attack all those who belong to him. And I think he also pursues with much effort those who are maybe seeking or coming to Christ to prevent them from putting their faith or trust in Christ. Because he's not stupid. He realizes once that you do that, once you put your faith, your trust in Christ, and you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and your sins are forgiven, you're not going to hell. This is not going to happen. But you know what? It's almost like it, it, he turns it up because he wants to dishonor the name of Christ. And if he can somehow work his way you know, into the, the lifestyle of a Christian and have them dishonor God in some way, it serves his purpose. But you know what? These temptations don't catch God by surprise. Isn't that a good thing? That God's not caught by surprise. As a matter of fact, here it was a plan. It says Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. That word tempted, it's a, it's a neutral word in the original language. It doesn't mean bad or evil. See, we think of temptation, we think of something bad. Well, this word means to literally, it means to test. And it could be to test for good purpose, or it could be to test for an evil purpose, or an evil intent. It just depends on what context it's being used. And here, obviously, it says that he was led up into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested by the devil. That's why it's translated, in most translation, tempt because the difference in the, the translation is when it's enticement to evil, you always use the word tempt. But when it's kind of a, a test, God's putting you through a test, 
Well, God has your betterment. He does, he's not trying to make you do something bad. He's trying to make you better. So at times, God does test us in our lives. I mean, think about it. In James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter what? Various trials or various tests. Same word. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And that you let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's God's plan when He puts a test into your life. And the difference between a test from God and a temptation from Satan is the temptation is enticing you to do something that would dishonor God. God would never entice you to do something that would dishonor His name. That's the difference. Christians can't be tempted in a way that God cannot use it for His good or for His glory. I don't know about you, but that, that makes me feel good. To realize that I cannot be tempted in a way that, that God can't turn that around and, and, and make it for my good and His glory. That's God's plan. That's God's purpose. And sometimes it's God's purpose and God's plan to use Satan's temptations as a means of testing. So he kind of backs off and allows Satan to do his little thing as he did here with Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What do you think? He was hiding from God? That God the Father was looking the other way and Satan said, Oh, he's not looking. I'll take his son out and tempt him. In. No, God knew exactly what was happening. As a matter of fact, he allowed it. Why? Because he knew that ultimately Christ would pass the test. And that would ultimately glorify him. It would ultimately confirm who Jesus Christ was. So whether the testing is by God's initiative or is sent by Satan, God can always use it to produce good in us when we meet the test in His power. And that's the key. If we go out there in the world and we try to run into these tests and these temptations in our own power, we're probably going to fail more times than not. The key is to do it in His power. To... Ask the Holy Spirit to, to, to rule and reign in your life. To be filled, to be controlled by the Holy Spirit each and every day. That's so important to understand that fact. God allows these testings in our lives, I believe, so that our spiritual muscles can be strengthened, can be exercised. James also says in 1.13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. In other words, entice someone for evil purposes. But each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his what? By his own flesh, his own lust. Well, let's look at this temptation. We're probably just going to get through the first one today, the first, the first temptation here. There's three of them as he lays it out here before Jesus. He's out in the wilderness. And we don't know where this wilderness place is. It doesn't really say. We don't know what he did out there for 40 days and 40 nights as he didn't eat or drink. He probably communed with his father and desired to do his will. It doesn't tell us. But when Satan came, this frontal attack was pretty, pretty strong. And these temptations, as we read through them, probably this week and the coming weeks, you're going to see that they get progressively worse. And that's the way Satan works. You know, that's the way... He doesn't just throw the worst sin right out in front of you, no. You know, he'll, he'll throw little things out there. You know, we just go ahead and tell that white lie. It's not really a lie. It's kind of, you know, and, and then, you know, pretty soon you're, you're telling bolder lies and bolder lies, and pretty soon you're known as a liar. You don't just wake up one day and say, hey, I think I'll become a liar. I'll just start lying. It's like, you know, uh, people that have been in, involved in, in, in marriages for, you know, as Ken was talking this morning, I mean, years. And then you read, well, you know, they split up. What happened? Somewhere along the line, so, one of the parties started to stray. And pretty soon, before you knew it, you know, there was disloyalty and, 
and uh, cheating and everything in that relationship, and it ends up in ruffles. You don't just wake up one day and say, I think I'll end my marriage today. It doesn't happen that way. It just doesn't happen. It happens over a period of time. And Satan doesn't throw his worst thing at us first. He always kind of starts off small. <laughs> and these temptations are designed to weaken and destroy us as believers, as they were the Messiah in this, in this text that we're reading. But the first temptation here was for Jesus to distrust the care of God, the care of his Father. Let's look at this. The first temptation. It says, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Do you think? Okay. Just speaking of, can you imagine not eating for 40 days and 40 nights? He was hungry. And then it says, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the Son of God, you notice how he starts off, if you are. You know, there's a lot of people today that, that, that are, are looking at Jesus Christ and saying, well, he's just one of the ways to heaven. You know, there's a multitude of ways. You know, you can believe in blah, 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 and on and on. They give you all these different belief systems, you know, and, and it's pretty close-minded just to think that Jesus is the only way. Well, he is. I don't know how else to tell you. Scripture tells us that over and over again. Unless you come through Jesus Christ, you're not going to see salvation. You're not going to see heaven. You're going to spend eternity in a place of torment called hell. That's the reality of it. I'm not trying to shock you. I'm just trying to be honest with you. And that's the truth. That's what the Bible says over and over and over again. So let's just stop being, you know, all this politically correct stuff and, you know, well, there's many ways that lead. No, there's not. There's only one. And that's through Jesus Christ, God's only Son. That sounds harsh. I'm sorry. But it's God's plan. It's not mine. I mean, take it up with Him. So it's important to understand that. And you notice that here, what Satan does is he questions who the Son of God is. That's the first thing on his agenda. And he wanted to disprove that he was who he said he was. Well, how could he do that? Look at what he says. He says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become what? Bread. Command that these stones become bread. What a self-serving thing. He, he hit Jesus right, right, right in the gut. Pardon the pun, but he did. He said, if you're the Son of God, why are you out here in the wilderness starving for 40 days and 40 nights? If you're the Son of God, why wouldn't God feed you? That's his thinking. And surely, if you are the Son of God, if you are who you say you are, then let's see you do a little magic with these rocks here. Turn them into some of those biscuits we had last night that were just incredible. You missed them. I think there may be some left over there. Hurry up over there in the fellowship time and grab those biscuits. They're great. Little rolls. Homemade. But Satan wanted Jesus to serve himself. And that's what Satan's into today. He wants us to serve ourselves. He wants, he wants us to just, you know, it's all about me. It's all about me. And you know what? It's the same approach he used with Eve. He cast doubt on God's word. You remember in the garden in Genesis 3, 1, he asked Eve, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any garden or tree in the garden? And what, what, what did Eve do? She doubted God's command. His first word to Jesus was what? If you are the Son of God. It's interesting because this is a conditional phrase that assumes that Jesus is indeed the Son of God, whom the Father had just proclaimed him to be in Matthew chapter 3. And before he gave this direct temptation, Satan gave this one simply to kind of set up the rest. Satan was hoping to persuade Jesus to demonstrate that his, his power was real, that who he, who he was was true. He wanted Jesus to somehow be baited into demonstrating, turning these rocks into bread that would meet a very human need, hunger that he had at that time. But what would that do? That would mean that Jesus would have to violate God's plan. That he would have to set 
that, 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 that he set that power aside and, and, and be humbled before the Father's will, not his own will. And what Satan did is he injected himself into the situation and says, hey, you know what, don't worry about God. You know, you, if you're really the Son of God, just do your own thing. Satan wanted Jesus to disobey God's plan. He wanted him to violate the plan of God in this instance. And even in affirming his deity and the rights that he has as the Son of God, he wanted him to act independently of his Father. And so he says, command these stones become bread. You notice that it immediately we're drawn to the attention, well, he must have been hungry, that must have been hard to, to deal with. That's true. But you know what? There's a deeper thing here. Because this deeper temptation was Satan's appeal to Jesus' supposed rights as the Son of God. In other words, he was looking at Jesus after having fasted for 40 days out in the wilderness. And you can imagine Satan coming along saying, Why? Why are you hungry, Jesus? Why, why would you starve out here in the wilderness, Jesus, if you're really the Son of God? How could the Father allow His Son to go hungry? He's not even going to provide a little morsel for him, a little manna like he did the rebellious children of Israel. He's not giving you anything. That's hard to believe. You're a man, Jesus. You need food to survive. You're going to die out here. If he lets you die in this wilderness, how can you fulfill your divine mission on his behalf, Jesus? Go ahead, just, just turn those stones into bread. Go ahead. See, the purpose of the temptation was not just to satisfy Jesus' hunger. It was to suggest that His being hungry was incompatible with His being the Son of God. He was being tempted to doubt the Father's Word, the Father's love, the God's provision for Him. And he had every right, Satan suggested, to use his own divine powers to su supply what the Father had not. I mean, obviously, his life was not a life of ease. I'm sure Satan was up there, you know, come on, you were born in a stable. You know, they had to cart you off to Egypt for your life. And, you know, you spent basically 30 years in, in this obscure village in Galilee. Forty days and nights unattended. Nobody knows you're out here. You're unrecognized. You're out here in the middle of nowhere, Jesus. Nobody cares about you. Obviously, your father doesn't care about you. Go ahead, turn those rocks, those stones into bread. Take care of your own needs, if you are the Son of God. See, this first temptation in the wilderness implied essentially the same mocking attitude that was shown to Jesus later on the cross at His crucifixion. You remember in Matthew 27, if you are the Son of God, what did they say? Come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God. It also included the wicked attempt to cause the second Adam to fail where the first Adam had failed in relation to food. <laughs> remember? Come on. Here, Adam, take a bite of this apple. It's pretty good. Satan wanted Christ to fail because of bread, just as Adam had failed because of fruit. What a neat little package. But above all, he wanted to really have Jesus rebel against the Father. But you stop and you think Jesus had come in His incarnation to do the Father's will, only His Father's will. And you see that over and over and over again. In John 4.34, he says... My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. On another occasion, in John 6.38, He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus said in Matthew 26.39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup, speaking of this torment and crucifixion, everything that's before Him, let this cup pass me. Yet not that I will, but as Thou wilt. And later, he says, My Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, speaking of the cup, thy will be done. Throughout his life, his ministry, Christ 
sought to do the Father's will. Satan, at every point, was there enticing Jesus to disobey. Stop and think about this. It was that absolute trust, that absolute submission that, that Satan wanted to break, that Satan wanted to shatter. If he would have succeeded, beloved, in any way, enticed Jesus to disobey in any way, it would have put a, one commentator says, an irreparable rift in the Trinity. I mean, it didn't happen for that reason, because God's greater than that, but if it did, I mean, incredible implications here. They no longer would have been three in one. It wouldn't have happened that way. Jesus would have broke rank about, you know, a rogue God somewhere. You know, it's just kind of crazy when you think about it. But every point in time in Christ's life, He was submissive to the Father's will. And He answered, and He says, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, all three responses to the devil by Jesus began with an appeal to God's Word. He always said, it is written. Psalm 119.11 says, Thy Word, David says, I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against what? Against you. You know, last week we talked about having armament, having some bullets ready. I mean, you, you spend time in God's Word. Hide it in your heart. That's what is going to repel and allow you to pass through the test so it doesn't turn into a failure of sin. How many times are you enticed to trust in your own provision and not God's for your life? How many times throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, are you looking at the, the checkbook and you're going, man, i got to make something happen here because obviously God's not. And you, you begin to work and you begin to get frustrated and then we begin to complain and then we begin to worry about all this stuff. And we forget that God has promised to meet our needs. God's people are never justified in complaining and worrying about their needs. It's just not justified. If we live by faith in Christ and we live in obedience to His Word, you know what? The Word of God says we will never lack anything we really need. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to have the brand new Cadillac or Continental or whatever Jaguar in your car tomorrow morning. That, that's not talking about that. It's talking about needs. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply all your needs. That's a promise from God. And he says, you know what? Not only that, but it's according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. It's not according to your riches. Jesus tells us that God knows what we need even before we ask in Matthew 6, 8. In 6.33, He says, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. You know what? We're always better off to obey God and to trust in His sustenance, His gracious sustenance for us each and every day than to impatiently and selfishly provide for ourselves in ways that disobey or that compromise His word. That's just the bottom line. See, our readiness to, to justify much of what we do is, is common because we're self-centered people. We're self-centered people. That's who we are. We all are. And somehow we get this idea that we deserve the best of everything that we have rights, that we have this, that we have that. And that belief begins to turn into demanding. Pretty soon we're grabbing and demanding things that we, we think that we deserve because of who we are. We have to remember, beloved, what we deserve is hell. That's what we deserve. That's the bottom line. Everyone in this room deserves to go to hell. Why? Because of our sin. We've all sinned. We all fall short of God's glory. The Bible says that very clearly. And God has graciously provided a way out of that doomsday 
that prognosis of hell. You don't have to go to hell. God has provided a way through His Son that you can cling on to Him, that you can come to Jesus and say, you know what? Yeah, I know that I've done things wrong. I know that I've sinned. Who hasn't? We all sin, the Bible says. But you know what? I need a way out of this. I can't pay for my own sin. I want to trust in You. It's the same thing Satan did with Jesus. He wanted Him to trust in His own provision. Go ahead, turn those stones into bread and you'll be satisfied. And it doesn't matter whether as believers we're trusting in our own provision, thinking that somehow because we work hard and that we do this and we do that, that we forget that, you know what, all that is because of the grace of God. It's only because of the grace of God that you get to get, be able to get up every morning and, and go to work. It's only because of the grace of God that you have a job, that you have an income, that you have a family. That's all comes under the grace of God. And sometimes we, we, we forget that and we begin to believe that, yeah, it's, it's me, it's all about me, it's about my talents, it's about my sales techniques, it's about this, it's about that, it's about this advertising, it's about, that's why I'm being blessed. Well, you know, and then we use the word blessed, you know. It's, it's crazy. We need to get on our knees and repent of our, of our just our self-centered ways and we need to say, God, it's not about us. Thank you for your grace in our lives. Thank you for providing a salvation that I don't have to work for. I mean, God could have done it another way, beloved. He could have said, yeah, you can go to heaven. Do this. Do that. Do this. Do that. But He didn't. He said, you know what? You trust in My Son. He's done everything that there is to do for your salvation. You need to trust in Him. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He put His full trust in God. Even though He was being tempted, He was being tested. His gut was probably just wrenching. He could probably see those stones turning into bread saying, it would taste so good right now. But He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. See, it's not just food that's a necessity in life. We need the power of God in our lives, beloved. I mean, we make all these grand plans and, and James tells us very simply that, you know what? We don't know about our future. None of us do. We don't know if we're going to make it home today. James 4.14 and 15 says this, Life is just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. When planning what we want to do, he says this, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Like Jesus, our purpose on earth, our intentions on earth, our plan on earth should only include what God's plan for us is. The guiding principle of His life should be the guiding principle in our life. That's just the way it should flush its way out in our lives every day. The central motive of our lives should be to please God and to trust Him. That He's going to supply everything that we need. Because He says in His Word that's what He'll do. And either God's a liar or He's not. And if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, we need to believe that He will make provision for us. Before Jesus told those people to seek first His kingdom, He kind of asked them a question in Matthew 6. He says this, Why are you anxious about clothing? They were asking what you were wear. And He says, Observe the lilies of the field. They do not toil, nor they spin. Yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory, Solomon was very rich, he was a grand, just individual in his own right. And yet it says, in all his glory, he did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will He not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? See, we can never please God. We can never even serve our own best interests by complaining about and demanding what we don't have. That doesn't serve the purpose of God. And it doesn't serve the purpose of God but by violating His will or His word in some, in some way to get what we want. 
I mean, if you persist in going down that path, you're, you're not in very good company. God's Word says very clearly that if, you, if you're a believer and you're just willfully doing what God doesn't want you to do, I mean, there comes a point in time where, you know what, He's going to discipline you, obviously, as any father would discipline their child. But there comes a point in time where He may even take you off the scene, out of the scene. He may take you home. We, we failed to believe that. You remember Ananias and Sapphira, they lost their lives because they lied to the Holy Spirit by telling the, Holy, the, the apostles that they received less than they actually did from the sales of some property. And then it goes on in the Corinthian church, some became weak, or weak and sick, and they even died. Why? Because they profaned the Lord's Supper. In 1 John 5, 16, it says the same thing. It gives us a warning about that, about being willfully disobedient before God. Let's not be deceived by Satan in this self-serving society in which we live. Let's stop and say, hey, you know what? God's going to take care of me. I don't need to serve myself. If my trust is in, in my God to serve all my needs, then what am I out there working so hard for me? Maybe I could spend time helping others, for goodness sakes. Maybe that's what God wants me to do. Rather than worrying about me all the time. And I think if we follow our Lord's example in this, no matter how urgent or important a need seems to be, I really believe that we're to wait. We're to wait for the Father's provision. That doesn't mean that you know God doesn't give us jobs. And I'm not saying you go home and you lock yourself in your closet and you know if you if you don't have a job and you have bills and you're just not going to work, you're just going to wait for money to fall out of heaven. No, I mean God gave us you know the, the willpower to get up and do things as well. He gave us gifts. He gave us talents. But we need to know what God wants from us. We need to know that just self-effort isn't good enough. We need to trust in Him. We need to continue to trust in Him. And that's what Satan really threw in Jesus' face. Oh, you're trusting in God and you're out here starving. You're going to starve in the wilderness. And this whole plan of salvation is going to go down the tubes because you're just too stubborn. Just turn those stones into bread, Jesus, and everything will be fine. Because Satan's subtle. Like I said, he's not going to come out and just, you know, do this horrible thing. And as you read on in the coming weeks, we're going to look at these other temptations. The first one was to distrust God's providential care. The second was to really presume on the Father's care by putting Him to the test. Because you know what Satan does next, as you read there in verses 5 to 7, he takes him out to the holy city, has him stand up on a temple, and he says, go ahead, throw yourself down. God will take care of you, I'm sure. And then the third one, he wants to him to renounce the way of his father and really just bow down and worship him. You can see how Satan gets so bold. And yet, when it wears away a little bit at a time, when we're caught in that little besetting sin, and it's not something huge, but it's something... You know, over a period of time, it just wears on us and wears on us. And then pretty soon, we're, we're, we're watching or we're looking at horrible, vile things that we would never want anybody else to do. And yet, we're sitting there doing that and we're thinking, how did I get here? started with one thought. started with one step. That's why something like pornography and the Internet and all that stuff that's on there is so dangerous. Satan's not stupid. He knows. Boy, you show a couple images of this to a teenager and God knows what kind, of, what kind of habit you're starting. It could impact that, that person's life for life. And it's only by the grace of God and His power that we can overcome those things. It's not in our own will, beloved. It's not in our just saying, okay, I'm going to do this thing. We have to rely on God. Just as Jesus relied on God, His Father, to get Him through this. And He was victorious in it. Let's bow in a word of prayer. And Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You that Your Word calls Satan who he is. That he truly is an accuser. 
He truly is a deceiver. He's the power of this era, the God of this world. He's a destroyer. And he, he wants to tempt us to do things that would dishonor your name. And Lord, I pray for the believers here this morning that by the power of, of Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that they would be willing to submit to you continually. Lord, they wouldn't do what they want to do. They wouldn't do what their flesh wants to do. Lord, it's so easy to give in to that. And yet, Father, we, we pray that our faith would grow as we endure these temptations, as we endure these temptations temptings and testings in our lives, that we would see our faith grow more and more. Lord, if there's anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith, their trust in you, I just want to say there's no hope outside of Christ. There's no hope in this world outside of Christ. There's no way that you're ever going to get a handle on things outside of Christ. There's no way that you could ever improve yourself enough to where God would look at you and say, okay, I know that you didn't come to Christ, but I'll let you in heaven anyway. It's never going to happen, ever. I think it's kind of a no-brainer when you really look at it. When you compare the penalty of hell, punishment, eternal torment out of the presence of God for eternity. Eternity is a long time. Forever. Or by bowing your knee to Christ, by coming to Jesus, coming to the cross, renouncing your sin, telling God you're sorry for your sin, acknowledging it before a holy God, asking Him to, to make you the kind of person He wants you to be, a person that honors His name and glorifies Him. I pray if that's the the desire of your heart this morning, that you'll, you'll address that to God. He, he's the only one that can answer that prayer. I, I can't help you in that department. God can, though. You cry out to God. He'll save you. He wants to. The enemy doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to keep on believing in yourself. Keep on believing in your own way. But God wants you to put your faith, your trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. And once you do that, beloved, I guarantee you, you'll never be the same. God will transform you. You don't worry about the details. God will take care of all the details concerning you. That's what His Word says. Take that first step today. Father, we thank You for our time here this morning. pray that You would bless our day as we leave this place. I pray that the message of Jesus Christ would be on our lips and lived out in our lives. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name.